This sermon is by Reverend John McSween. The text is from the 24th chapter of Acts, verses 14 and 15. Help us, we beseech you, to call upon thee, numbering us with those of whom it is true, that the Spirit helps their infirmities. We know not what to ask for. We know not how to ask as we ought. And the hearing is revealed the desperate wickedness of our heart, the desolation that sin has brought in us. We would bless thy name for what thou hast accomplished in order to bring the lost and the ruined to thyself, that thou hast made provision for their infirmities, that thou hast made a way of access to thyself, a way on which thou needest thine own. And grant to us at this time we beseech of thee to be in some measure conscious of thy provision in Christ Jesus. Its glory and its suitability to our King that from our heart may go forth a song of thanksgiving to God for the wonders he hath done and that his holy arm and mighty hand him victory hath won. Grant that our confidence may be holy in thyself. Grant that we may be so exercised in mind as to glorify thee, rendering to thee what is thine, even glory and honor, majesty and strength. Mark not our iniquities against us, we beseech Our sins testify against us. Our iniquities have like the wind carried us away. And we have nothing to plead on our own behalf, no justification for our sin. Oh, blessed grant that we may realize more and more deeply that all our righteousnesses are as filthy that we may cease from the endeavor of justifying ourselves, and that we might resort to thee for our justification, for pardon of our iniquity, for a covering of our sins. May we be found 
in the sexual side, drawing near unto thee as a sinner, that is, as having nothing to commend us unto thee, nothing that we can please in and of ourselves. For thou receivest a sinner, yet thou hast come to call not righteous, but sinners to repentance. May we therefore know what it is to draw near unto thee in Christ Jesus, pleading his merit, making mention of his righteousness and of his own. We pray thee to save us from the deceitfulness of our heart, from the hypocrisy thereof, and work in us a sincerity that uh, thou commandest, a sincerity without which we cannot see thee. Lord, wilt thou not for thy mercy say, make known what thou canst do by working in us to will and to do of thy good pleasure. Be with us as we would further wait upon Bless us as individuals, bless us as a people. Do thou thyself be gracious unto us as families. Thou art the God of the families of Israel. Oh, that thou wouldst be our God. We pray thee to remember such as are cast down such as have to pass through things that are not joyous, but grievous, while they are present. But thou art able to make them work for their good, for they do work for good to them who are exercised by them. Lord, be with us now and be with all the congregations of thy people, blessing thy word as it is spread and proclaimed. Take away all our sins and accept of us in Christ, in whom thou shalt have the praise. Amen. I confess 
unclean. But after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. This would seem a concession to Paul's accusers. But it was not meant by himself to be a concession. It is a statement of truth which did not militate against his position as he stands to defend himself. This is his, I confess, that according to the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my father. As if he had said there is a difference between their way of worship and mine. There is a difference between us on one basic principle. There is a difference of attitude between us concerning Jesus of Nazareth. That I alone, of that there can be no doubt. But while that is so, we are also agreed on certain things. We have hope in God, and we look for a resurrection, both of the just and of the unjust. And if they exercise themselves to avoid offense, towards God and towards man, so do I. The fact that we differ on the basic question of justification does not at all tell in their favor. For while I hold that indeed, yet I exercise myself I am concerned in this matter to keep a conscience void of events. That is, uh, we might say, generally, the import of this uh, part of his defense. Now to deal with the words a little more specifically, or rather with some of the words here. There is first of all the interesting word, heresy. I confess that according to their view, I am a heretic. Now a heretic is one <clears throat> who is out of agreement 
with prevailing notions and doctrines. To be a heretic, in this sense of the word, has nothing unfavorable connected with it. It all depends from whose viewpoint we are heretics. Paul was a heretic, and he allows that. He doesn't say, of course, that he was a heretic in the sense of denying truth. He, in fact, he argues against that point, but that he was a heretic according to the doctrine of the Pharisees, he allows. And of course, as always, we have the master stroke in this connection. What does he say? A heretic as I may be from their viewpoint, yet I believe all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He is willing, in other words, to decide this question by authority which is allowed on both sides. And, of course, that authority is the law and the prophets. That is the word of God. If I am called a heretic and at the same time believe all that was written in the law and in the prophets, then I am not greatly concerned about the term. Call me a heretic, yes. But I believe all that is written. And of course, indirectly, he turns on them to charge. Two contradictory statements cannot be true of the same thing at the same time. Now, if according to uh, the, the, uh, the men who came down from Jerusalem, the representatives of the um, temple, if Paul was a heretic, according to them, then it is very much to the point that their own standing should be examined. It is very much to the point that what they believed should be tried in the balance. And that is precisely the, at least the um, inference of the Apostle in saying, according to them I am a heretic, yet I believe all that is written in the law and in the prophets. In passing, we may note that Paul did not shrink from odious terms. It is not complimentary to call any man a heretic. But Paul was willing to bear even that name, as long as it was understood what it meant. I am a heretic, according to their way of thinking and their way of doing things. But I worship God. I worship God. He certainly is no agnostic. I worship God. That's my stand. And I worship him believing what God has stated and declared of himself. 
at any man who does that. It's not a heretic in the usual connotation of that term. I worship God. Now this is the only worship that God accepts. The worship that is offered according to that which he has revealed of himself. Now see the difference that comes out here. Here are two parts. <clears throat> Disagree on certain matters concerning the law. Or, uh, to be more precise, disagreeing on certain matters concerning the fulfillment of prophecy. For that, after all, was the basic contention between the believers and the unbelievers. Those who believed in Jesus believed in the fulfillment of prophecy. They believed that the Messiah who had been promised from the beginning had come. The rest disbelieved this. They still waited for the Messiah. And they are still waiting. And they will go on waiting. For there will not be another Messiah. This was the contention then, the basic contention between them. It, it uh, can be resolved to, to the fulfillment of God. Jesus of Nazareth made the division between them. I worship God, but I worship him in a certain way. I worship him believing that he has fulfilled with his hand what his mouth had promised. I worship him as God who has accomplished that which he has promised, who has sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin that he might condemn sin in the flesh. Now, this was bound to me a difference in the worship of uh, the different parties here concerned. One looked to God for the fulfillment of prophecy. The other praised God for that fulfillment already accomplished. I was God. Now this was the heresy. The heresy was that Paul believed that the Messiah had come. And of course, believing that there was of necessity a profound change in his attitude to God, to life, to death, and to the resurrection. Although the others held in part at least the same truths, they believed in the resurrection. That is the Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't of them. But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. But no. They had no proof of a resurrection. Paul believed in a resurrection, but he believed in a resurrection that had taken place. The Pharisees believed in it, but they had no proof of it. They didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul did, and you will notice 
that the doctor of resurrection in the scripture and especially in the epistles of Paul that that doctrine is united or intimately linked with the resurrection of Christ. Paul's theology on this point is Christocentric. It derives its validity from the resurrection of Christ. He believed in the resurrection, but he had proof of it. He knew that resurrection had already taken place. That is, the resurrection of Jesus. And he worshipped God in this light, believing all that was written in the law and in the prophets. Notice now the difference there may be in belief. The Pharisees believed that too. At least uh, so they professed. They believed in the law and in the prophets. So did Paul. But did they believe in the same way? Did they believe on the same grounds? Or no? And that is what vital importance in the way in which we cherish our beliefs. The Pharisees had what we might call a naked belief in the law and in the prophets. It wasn't clothed with fulfillment. It was an object of hope but there was nothing which uh, could bolster that hope. There was nothing of which they knew that could put that hope out of question. They believed and they hoped. All very well as far as it went. But see the assurance that was lacking. They could not, in the nature of things, stand in the same relationship to those matters as Paul did. I believe, he said, all that the prophets have spoken, but I believe them in the light of their fulfillment. Oh, what a difference that is. I see them. I believe what the prophets, I was not known to them. That doesn't mean that I didn't know the name Jehovah. Oh no, they did know that name. Yet God himself says, by my name Jehovah, I was not known unto them. Now, the only meaning that we can take out of that is that the name Jehovah means the God who fulfills his promise. They knew that he had this name, but they didn't know him as fulfilling his promise. What was the promise? That he would give them the land of Canaan. They didn't know me. They didn't know this name. What was what was meant by it? They knew it, of course, in theory. They knew that God, that the word Yahweh or Jehovah meant the self-sufficient, the promise-fulfilling God. But they hadn't seen the fulfillment of the promise. They died in hope, not having received the promise. Not the promise itself, of course, but the fulfillment of it. Well, here is the same exactly. These Pharisees did not know the God of Islam under his name Jehovah. As concerning the Messiah, 
They had every opportunity of knowing him in that way. But they refused to consider the evidence. They refused to allow the evidence. But not so in the case of Paul. He knew God as Jehovah in relation to the promise of the Messiah. And under this name, he could worship him intelligently, not only as a ground of hope, but as a ground of accomplishment. This name had been proved to him, proved in connection with the hope of Israel, and the hope of Israel always was the Messiah. The Messiah. They call my way heresy. <clears throat> but Paul was in the happy position of knowing his present position and his past position. These men could teach him nothing about the doctrine of the Pharisees. They could teach him nothing about the law and the prophets. He was at least as well versed in these as they were. In all probability, he could have taught them much concerning that which they themselves professed. He knew it all. But he knew something they did not know. They couldn't understand his new position. They knew the old one, yes, but they knew what they could not understand. Hence, they persecuted him. They brought all manner of accusation against him. Why? Because they couldn't understand the position he occupied. They didn't know anything about it. But we say he was in the happy position of knowing both sides. And the man, of course, who knows the both sides of a case is in a position that is impregnable. Certainly those who don't know cannot attack what they don't know. They can accuse it. They can miscall it. But they cannot attack it. They have no ammunition for attack. And perhaps we may say in passing that when Paul is um, standing in self-defense, you will have noticed this. When he stands in self-defense, he always refers to his change of position. He explains it. We have three accounts of that change in this book of Acts. And always in the same circumstances. He is defending himself. Defending his position. And he always refers to this. He goes back to the source. To the origin. It is in the way they call heresy. But to me, it is no heresy. It is the fulfillment of God's word spoken in the law and in the prophets. There is no inconsistency, as there is no ambiguity. Everything is crystal clear to him. That is the advantage, we say, we have. It is not crystal clear to them. It is all obscure. Why? They don't hold the key to the riddle. They lack the key. It is close to them. The key was this. The vision of the Christ. 
knowledge of the Messiah. They did not. As someone put it, it was to them an enigma within a conundrum, or a conundrum within an enigma. Insoluble, unintelligible. To them, it is heresy indeed. And it will be heresy to them as long as they occupy the position they now occupy. It will be heresy to them until the glory of Jesus of Nazareth shines upon them. Then it will be no heresy. It will be the doctrine of the fathers, the doctrine of the prophets, the doctrine of the law, the doctrine that was propounded first in Eden. When God gave promise, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. I, I confess this. It is after the way they call heads that I worship. But I worship Jehovah, the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I worship him, believing. I cannot help thinking, but but there is a certain irony in that word. Believing. As if he had said, I believe what the law and the prophets say. See how serious these men are about the law and the prophets. They accuse me of not observing what the law demands, of not believing the prophets. See how zealous they are. But I believe what the law and the prophets say, and believe it in a way they don't. If there is any unbelief, it is not on my part, it is on theirs. It turns the accusation on themselves. Believe. Believe. The law, what is written in the law and in the prophets. And have hope toward God. What I believe is calculated to produce hope to generate hope, to strengthen hope. What I believe, and especially what I believe concerning the doctrine of the resurrection. What do I believe? Oh well, what we have already indicated. As if he had said, I know the truth of that doctrine. For I meant with one who has come back from the dead. That was more than any of them could say. I met Jesus of Nazareth. Or rather, he met me. He spoke to me as one who is alive from the dead. And in him and by him and through him, I know the truth of the doctrine of the resurrection. I have hope. Hope toward God. <clears throat> I have it. Which they did not and could not have. <clears throat> perhaps the, the perhaps one of the distinguishing characteristics of Judaism to the present day is this. It's hope and it's faith. 
They have such strange blending of these two. They cannot really blend. But side by side you can feel hope and despair. And not only is that true in general of the doctrine, it is true of the history. It is a history of hope. It's a history of despair. That might require some elucidation, but we take it that you know what we mean. Now, as concerned Paul, the element of despair had vanished. His horizon was bright. His horizon had no cloud in it as far as this was concerned because the sun shone in it in its meridian splendor. Light shone in that horizon as the sun of righteousness. Hope concerning God, concerning the resurrection of the day. But there's another point. And with that we finish. Is this a hope? Or is it something to be dreaded? Paul rejoiced in the hope of the resurrection. It wasn't something that he dreaded. It was something to which he looked forward with keen anticipation. I have hope. Hope that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now if we understand it, and if we understand ourselves, there is no doctrine that should produce in us so much despair or so much hope as the doctrine of the resurrection. To think of the resurrection of the unjust. And in connection with resurrection in the scripture there is always judgment. As we read in this, uh, in this book itself, he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man which he hath appointed, whereof he has given assurance to all men by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The doctrine of resurrection, judgment of the just and the unjust, does this, does this um, produce hope? Or is it something to which uh, we give up our, our assent with fearful forebodings? Well, if we understand anything at all about it, it should be the one or the other. And furthermore, it is often a doctrine that produces hope in the same mind. If anybody has contemplated the awful scene of a world called to judgment, if anybody can contemplate that scene without emotion, then it is clear proof that they don't either know anything about it or that they don't believe, they don't understand what it means. It is so august, so awful in itself, as that it certainly should produce solemnity of spirit at least. But this is hope, and nothing but hope for the believer, as it is despair, and nothing but despair for the unbeliever. Hope to 
what God. He has given assurance of it. No, I believe this. But he believed it with joy. He looked forward to this. It wasn't merely an article of faith. It was the strength of his spirit. Something on which he relied. Something to which he looked forward. Something which was the consummation of his hope. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And as such, they allow that. I believe it. My life is framed according to it. And because of it, I exercise myself to keep a conscience. Why it? What God and what man? Only faith can give us to live in the light of sin. And the life of faith is always lived in the light of the judgment seat. I exercise myself to keep a conscience void of offense. These people accuse me of impiety, of ungodliness, of having profaned the temple. They do. <laughs> But I am a judge that is above them. And in my relation to him, I exercise myself. But also in relation to men. Hence his defense here. That's why he defends himself. Or defends his position. That he exercises himself to keep a conscience. Void of offense. If he didn't care about what men thought, he didn't go to the trouble of defending himself. But his religion, his piety was such that it first concerned itself with God and then with the fellow man to keep a conscience. Boy of offense. That is his defense. And he challenges his accusers to prove otherwise. <clears throat> the case uh, against him is very poorly conducted. Tertullus, the auditor, May have been a good auditor, but in this instance he had a bad case. And when a man has a bad case to deal with it, to deal with it doesn't matter how brilliant he is. The badness of his case insinuates itself into his endeavors to to, um, to prosecute that case. Tertullus, he did his best. A poor best it was. They had failed to bring the right witnesses. Those who were there could prove nothing. And if there had not been a miscarriage of justice, Paul would have been set free there and there. But he had to deal with men who had an eye to their own interests. See what is said at the end of the chapter. Felix looked for a bribe. And when the administrators of justice look for bribes, then justice itself is gone. He thought that something would have been given to him of all, and he sent for him often with the Zimbabwe. He wanted to make personal gain out of this. 
And when he did not get what he desired, that for which he looked, in order to do the Jews a pleasure, he left all bound. Corruption in high places. Corruption in the administration of justice. There is nothing that can undermine society so quickly and so effectively as that corruption in high places. Well, so it was here. And despite the clarity and the persuasiveness with which Paul presented his case, he is still left bound in order to please One word in conclusion. The way of life is not always acknowledged in this life. The man who keeps a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man is not looked upon as a evil at all. No. He is often trampled upon. But there is a resurrection. There is judgment to come. And when Paul reasoned of righteousness, evidence, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. He didn't like that at all. No, no. He didn't like it. He trembled. And he had reason to. He trembled, as we all have, of course. Judgment to God. He trembled. Well, so this man makes his position clear, and makes his position clear in a way worthy of imitation. I worship God. Believe. All that is said in the law and in the prophets, having hope of a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Hence, I exercise myself to keep a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. May this be true of us. Let us pray. Lord, Lord, Gracious, he bless us according to the riches of thy grace. Oh, give us to believe what we ought to believe concerning thee. Give us to bless thy name for what thou art, and for what thou hast revealed of thyself. Undertake for us, and take away all our sins, especially our sins and holy. Oh, cleanse us, and then we shall be whiter than the snow. For Christ's sake, amen.